If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, I think it's really sad, the end of the late night service, that I myself am home in bed by that time. But I think really to be the vibrant city that Boston and the Boston area is, we need to have that kind of world-class service. So um, this November, there's going to be a ballot initiative with everybody in Massachusetts to vote on whether or not the red line should secede from Boston, Somerville, Cambridge, all the areas to come in contact with and form its own independent municipality, its own city, um, with you know businesses, public parks, housing, the whole nine yards. What are your thoughts on that? I completely support the red line being an independent government because the red line really has its own culture. And, and I actually plan to run for mayor of the Red Line. That is the best answer you could possibly give. <laughs> Previously in Greater Boston. Charlotte felt a tightening that might very well be her first contractions. But she didn't have time for that. The baby was just applauding. It just knew a good speech when it heard one. Professor Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth tried to walk away from tenure. This just isn't working for me. He thought that should reasonably put an end to his career. That's what you'd call it after you've had as many drinks as I drank yesterday, but, 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 but not today. Today, I haven't had any. Leon told me not to. Last night, after he died. Braintree. Right. Peabody. Haverhill. Lowell. All right. Limits. Fall River. Cambridge. Quincy. I can't say that one without a river. Uh, Arlington. Framingham. Newton. Lynn, Worcester, this is Waltham, Quincy, Arlington, Revere, Somerville, Arlington, this is Lemonster, Haverhill, Brookline, Somerville, Cambridge, this is, this is, this is Greater Boston. This week in Greater Boston, Charlotte's labor yields results in Montgomery. The mayor of the Red Line prepares his grand entrance in No The, and Michael has an unexpected confrontation at a bar in Liberation. All of that this week in episode 11, The Red Line Referendum. Hello. You have reached the voicemail of Leon Stamatis. I was not expecting a call at this time but you can expect that I will retrieve this message within the next 12 hours as I check my voicemail messages at 11 a.m. and 11 p.m. every day, barring prior scheduled engagements. At the end of this message, 15 seconds from this moment, you will hear a beep. Following the beep, please leave your name, telephone number, complete message, and the time and date that you would like to receive a return phone call. If this is an unscheduled emergency, please hang up and dial 911. 
This means you, Dimitri. This message is for Michael Tate. My name is Uriah Connolly, and I own the property at 17 Orchard Street in Cambridge. I know you've been squatting in this property for the past several months, at least since my tenant, Leon Stamatis, died. I was unaware of his death until I heard him mention on the news in a speech by that red-line nutjob. You can imagine my dismay to learn that someone I know nothing about has been living in my property for I don't know how long. I hope you're checking his voicemail as well as living in his apartment so you receive this message. This is to notify you you are occupying this property illegally and must vacate immediately. I appreciate that you have kept current on the rent these past few months, and so I will not be seeking back rent, although I will certainly press for reimbursement for maintenance if you have committed any damage to the structure. You are not authorized to continue residence. I will be inspecting the property personally on Monday morning, and I expect to find it empty. Thank you, and God bless. Gemma was done with gastromancy. Charlotte had insisted, unable to bear the constant gurgles and farts that resulted from Gemma's gastromantic diet. Gemma resisted pointing out the similar state of Charlotte's digestive behavior these past few months. She knew that was unfair, even if it was true. Besides, Charlotte's prego farts didn't bother her. She didn't know when it was exactly that she'd gotten so zen about farts, but there it was. Charlotte hadn't taken the news of Gemma's firing very well at all. Gemma tried to spin it positively. She pointed out how much happier they would all be once they found their right places in the world. Charlotte wanted to return to work, and Gemma wanted to stay home. So it was all for the best, wasn't it? But Charlotte was beyond sympathy. You don't like your job, Gemma? So what? Nobody likes their job. That's why it's called a job. It's not a hobby. It's not playtime. It's a justification for your existence. So who the hell are you now? Why are you even still here? What's the point of you? As though Gemma's job had ever been the point of her. It was easy for Charlotte to think that way when she had worked so hard at something she genuinely loved. The world didn't need her to draw imaginary trees next to imaginary buildings in some imaginary city. They didn't even name the place. It was just The City. Capital C. Capital The. But Charlotte loved it. She loved it. How can you have that and then tell someone else not to want the same? Of course, Charlotte had never said such things before the work she loved had vanished from her life. Gemma understood that. She did. She wouldn't let herself get angry. She wouldn't snap back at her pregnant wife. She would consider Charlotte's overripe belly and bite her tongue. She would bite it till she tasted blood. And now here they were. Charlotte three weeks past due and the doctors all two and a half weeks past calling for inducement. And Charlotte still telling them all to back off, hold their horses, keep their shirts on. She had even managed to hold off another 13 days after the Park Street incident. Jem had been at home watching the press event, wishing she was there, that Charlotte had welcomed her support for this harebrained scheme that they'd suddenly hitched their lives to. But Charlotte told her to watch it from home like the rest of the citizenry. She had to concentrate, she said. She couldn't have her attention divided.
And so Gemma saw the whole thing live on television. The first asshole jumping the gaps, the second asshole decidedly not jumping the gaps, and then suddenly there was Charlotte, hopping down into that chasm, belly and all. Gemma was sure a crazy thing like that would trigger labor in any woman, ready or not. But not Charlotte. Not until after the referendum, she still insisted. She almost made it, too. Another 24 hours was all she needed. She could have waited with Paul. Gemma refused to call him the mayor, since he wasn't the mayor of anything, not really. Just another weird old academic who thought knowing a lot about one thing meant he had important opinions about everything. Gemma would have gone if Charlotte had let her. Wasn't it traditional for political wives to be there for the party, at least? Well, it hardly mattered now, did it? Because Charlotte wasn't in a Filene's former basement with former Professor Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth. They weren't sitting together in their campaign headquarters watching the results roll in. She was at Brigham and Women's Hospital with Gemma. Here they were, with their go-bag and their birth plan and their parents waiting downstairs. Every ten minutes a doctor or nurse or intern wandered in to have a quick gander into Charlotte's vagina and offer brief encouragements. Charlotte's eyes stayed fixed on the television the entire time. Gemma, turn the sound off. They're only talking about the elections. I don't care about that. I just want the referendum results. The anchors don't talk about those. They don't talk about how the democratic masses come together to pass laws for their own electoral power. They just talk about the new figureheads, the old figureheads, the people who run everything into the ground. <sighs> Running it into the ground is about to become a good thing, isn't it? If we win, that's literally what we'll be doing, running our whole brand new city down through the ground, a city beneath the city. It'll really be something, Gemma, won't it? And we'll be okay then. The mayor promised me an appointment, a title. I mean, of course, right? The campaign manager always gets a plum spot once the votes are, and benefits of nepotism so long as we win. We won't find out from the Dixon suits, though. They won't talk about the referendums. Maybe the pot one. Everyone likes to talk about how it's the end of society if a teenager smokes a joint without going to jail for it. But forging a new city from the writhing guts of the old one? That'll just get a note in the ticker at the bottom of the screen. See, there it goes now. 15% of votes in, and we're down. 48 to 52. Ugh. Oh, Revere voted no. Ah, fucking blue line. Choo-choo, motherfucker. Gemma said nothing. She held her breath. Then she released it. Breathe in. Breathe out. Eventually, it was time to push. The doctors gave Gemma instructions. Hold Charlotte's leg this way. Pull it back just this much. Steady. Gemma pulled while Charlotte pushed. The baby's coming along fine, said the doctor. Oh, Paul Deadhaven! Good old People's Republic of Cambridge is swinging things our way. But we still have to see which way the suburbs go. The baby's crowning, said the doctor. And she invited Gemma to look. Invited her to touch, even. She guided Gemma's tentative hand to that little exposed patch of head. How does he feel? He feels squishy. Like fleshy jello or or memory foam. That's less gross, right? His head is so soft. I I know I'm not hurting him, but I can't understand how I'm not hurting him. 
I feel like anything I do could hurt him. I guess that's how we'll feel forever now. Charlotte resumed pushing. The head emerged, and the baby cried while he was washed and wrapped, only coming once he was back in his mother's arms. His first mother, the mother who birthed him. Gemma felt a pang of jealousy, but punched it down hard. She watched her son take the breast for the first time. She watched him drink his fill. After a half hour, he let out the first audible fart of his little life, a low-pitched blat that shook the seat of his swaddling. Gemma laughed out loud. <laughs> and so did Charlotte. I know exactly what you mean, thought Gemma. And she did. But she didn't say so, not out loud. Not to Charlotte. Let's name him Montgomery. After your boss? After the mayor. He's not a mayor. He is now. She pointed at the screen so Gemma looked, and there it was. The count was in, 53% to 47. The city of Redline was officially a thing. is coming to Wonderland. That's right. Wonderland Amusements, now under new management, will soon be closing its doors for renovations. But before the old Wonderland disappears into history, you still have one week to come down and experience the old-fashioned thrills of Whirlodon and Railosaurus, the quaint pyrotechnics of our fighting the flames, urban conflagration reenactment, the soporific melodies of our classic carousel. Once that week is up, the old Wonderland will be retired forever. But we'll be back after a technological overhaul of all our rides and attractions. There will be accelerations and modernizations and, yes, even robotizations. Out with the old, in with the future. Join us today and tomorrow at Wonderland. Now brought to you by Cloud City Amusements. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How can this possibly have happened? It's unthinkable. Unimaginable. Not once had the mayor ever considered the possibility that such a preposterous, plainly impractical arrangement might actually reach fruition. But it has. The referendum has passed. The red line now has a mayor, really and truly, and he, Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth, is it. No, not the red line, just red line now. It's a city, no longer a branch of the MBTA, 
no longer one among a spider's web of interdependent throughways. It's a rogue being, a runaway... that's a terrible metaphor. So obvious. He can't use that in his victory speech. God, I wish I'd actually written a victory speech. He had written his concession speech. It was all ready to go, right there on his desk. But he had never planned for the other contingency, the optimal outcome, the extraordinary event. He had never counted on winning. So now here he is, sitting in his little rolling chair with the one wheel that refuses to turn. The furniture had been here when they claimed the office, former abode of some retail manager at Filene's basement. Beyond his office, scattered across the desolate retail floor, bridal gowns still lay in piles, draped over skeletal racks, graying, sloughed-off skins, the rejected detritus of the running of the brides. And so Paul Montgomery thinks of Claudia, his own long-ago bride-to-be, who had run that gauntlet some thirty years back, scooping gowns from racks ten at a time, dodging the knuckles and elbows of a legion of premarital combatants. Claudia returned home victorious, bruised like a derby girl, someone else's blood smeared across one cheek. The dress she'd won was hardly worthy of her, but she would wear it with a warrior's pride. God, she was glorious. But that is not what the mayor should be thinking about. He should be thinking about his speech. This would be easier if Charlotte were here. Charlotte with her efficient dedication and her clever mind and her inspiring heroism. Charlotte had followed up on all the paperwork that needed to be filed. Charlotte had drawn up all those beautiful dreamscapes that papered the walls of the subway with fantastical visions of utopian transit. And where is she now that I have to face the consequences of her talent? In the hospital, giving birth to a baby. Meanwhile, a thousand people are waiting to congratulate him, to cheer his achievement, to ask him, when? When will our new homes be ready? When will our new lives begin? better have an answer. I should address the transit employees first. Their entire livelihoods are on the line. No pun intended. God, these train metaphors are so hard to avoid. They just creep in. On the line, end of the line, third rail, off the rails, railroading, train of thought, runaway train. There are so damned many of them. How could any culture invest so much in its railroad metaphors, yet so little in its railroads? Oh, that's good. He can use that. It's a solid start. Then I'll thank Charlotte. I'll talk about how her leap onto the tracks embodies the community spirit of Redline. And I'll announce the birth of the baby. Charlotte will appreciate the metaphorical value of announcing the birth of the city and the birth of its first baby in a single moment. A single breath, as momentous as the birth of Virginia Dare in Roanoke. No, God no, that's a terrible comparison. Virginia Dare died. Everyone in Roanoke died, probably. They certainly disappeared thoroughly enough, although they might have only just joined the natives, gone off into the wilderness, or what had seemed like wilderness to short-sighted Europeans, but was actually a thriving community, more than capable of absorbing a small tribe of naive, starving white men. Well, that was hardly the only time a naive white man wandered off into the wilderness. Claudia would certainly say as much. And now he's thinking of Claudia again, wondering where she is what kind of life she's lived. He hasn't heard news of her in years. But how would he? All the friends they'd shared had walked away from him after he'd walked away from her. Who 
wanted to be friends with someone who abandons his bride three weeks before the wedding? And for no good reason. No reason at all. None that he could articulate, anyway. It was just too much. Too big a thing. Husband was not a title I've ever been qualified to hold. And now he's out on the abandoned sales floor. The dark and echoing basement with a capital B, trademarked as it was. There are so many hangers. Thousands of them scattered everywhere. Yet not a shred of clothes save the wedding dresses. How had that come to be? The store had not been a bridal shop. That was only one small part of their stock. Pants and shirts, suits and ties, shorts and socks, and lingerie and shoes and hats. All of it was gone but the wedding dresses. This is not where I belong. Not anymore. Not 45 minutes after the referendum has ended and victory has been announced by everyone except me. The time has come to improvise, to follow my gut. His gut calls for a gin and tonic. Yes, he's, he's at a bar now. He walked out of Filene's basement, then up the stairs to Winter Street, then Tremont Street, and all the way down to that cramped little booze hole across from the Majestic. And he sat at the bar in order to drink. One for the road. One for Redline. How long before Redline looks like Filene's basement? Or Roanoke Colony? He says this out loud to a guy trapped in a staring contest with a shot of whiskey. The guy's fingers twitch like a cowboy's preparing for a quick draw. Longer without me than with me, I'll wager that much. The guy introduces himself. They spend a while talking. An hour later, Park Street Station is empty. Paul Montgomery's supporters all gone home, still wondering what their victory means, what their future holds, why their mayor has gone away. Hi. My name is Michael. I'm an alcoholic. I'm three months sober. Paul. Paul Montgomery Chelmsworth. The mayor. At your service. Tonight only. Huh. So, this morning I found myself unexpectedly homeless. I'm being evicted from the home of my best friend. My dead best friend. You should try Redline. They'll have openings soon. Whole new vistas of domestic comfort. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll do that. Or I'll drink this. It's, it's one or the other. This afternoon, at work, I found a bottle of vermouth under a false bottom in my desk drawer. It wasn't mine. I'm the new guy at work. The old guy left a secret bottle right there waiting for me. No gin to go with it. Just straight, cheap vermouth. Apparently, that's somebody's thing. That's not my thing. I reminded myself of that. Repeatedly. I, I took the bottle to the bathroom and poured the vermouth down the drain 23 minutes after I found it, which was exactly 30 seconds after I won the historic battle of Don't Drink the Cheap Old Vermouth Asshole. I didn't throw out the bottle, though. I didn't even rinse it. It's still under the false bottom. Still a few stray drops in it. I'm sure I could get them if I tipped the bottle just so and work the tip of my tongue deep enough into the neck. Those drops would be right there for the tasting. But vermouth is not my thing. Whiskey is my thing. So now you've got a whiskey. 
And you're just going to walk away from your sobriety? Because you've lost your apartment? Uh, not my apartment. Leon's apartment. Now, I haven't had my job very long. Like I said, I'm, I'm the new guy. I was in the middle of a binge when I got it. I I'm not even sure even if I understand the job that I'm doing. And then there's the bar in the break room and, 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 and the secret booze in the secret drawer and fucking Tyrell's fucking margarita-thons. It's, it's, it's all so precarious. But Leon's been my guide. Uh, my lighthouse on the shore. And I'm losing him. Again. Uh, the haven he gave me. The, the landing pad. The, the, the cushion. It, it's gone. I'm on my own. But I'm not someone who should ever be on his own. I, I never had the will. I'm trying as best as I can not to be okay with that. Why not be okay with it? There's freedom in accepting the inevitable. I feel a certain fellowship among the acquiescent. I've just done a, an extravagant bit of quitting myself. What are you quitting? Redline. Your mayorship that you only just got. Why? It's just too much. Too big a thing. Mayor is not a title I've ever been qualified to hold. How long before Redline looks like Filene's basement or Roanoke Colony? Longer without me than with me, I'll wager that much. But you haven't even tried yet. Why attempt what you know you can't do? Fight or flight. That's built into us, and we idolize fight. We always say it. Keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't give in. Never surrender. Why not? Personally, I'm for flight. Why lionize intransigence and obsession, chest-beating and jingoism? The cure for a bad job is quitting. The cure for a bad marriage is divorce. The cure for war is surrender. Sometimes it's best that we stop trying to fix things and simply accept that they're broken and irreparable and move on from there. We, each of us, have a nature. We are our nature. I'm going to leave Redline. You're going to drink that whiskey. And when we wake up in the morning, we can each of us take solace in the surety that we are still unimpeachably ourselves. As we have ever been, as we ever shall be. Hallelujah! That was a take-a-drink line, in case you didn't notice. I noticed. And yet you didn't drink. I imagined that I did. I imagined the taste of it. The liquid burn on my tongue. I imagine it so often, sometimes I think I've already done it. It's already too late. I've already given in. So I might as well just go ahead and have another. I can still taste it. I can taste the next drink I haven't taken yet. And the one after that. It's like it's like knowing the future. The future is a lot less scary once you realize it's not your responsibility. We all just follow our nature. There's nothing to be done about it. 811-549-176-10312. What's that? Proof that you're wrong. I don't understand. You knew my friend, Leon. Uh, you talk about him in your speeches. Uh, the man more important than the park. Leon Stamatis. That's him. Leon was for fight. He believed in taking charge of his future. Where I'm sitting now? 
This is the same place I was sitting the time Leon literally pulled me off the bar stool and dragged me out into the street. He took charge of my future in a way I never knew was possible right up until until I felt his knuckles on the back of my neck hauling me by my collar. Maybe he'll do it again. Maybe that woman will get good shots of it, of me being dragged out of here by a ghost. Ah, right. I forgot to mention. Uh, There's a woman stalking me with a camera. Uh, You should watch out for her if you're trying to be sneaky. I'll keep an eye out. I got on the red line at Porter Square this morning. The crazy long escalator had been stopped and was full of people, all 143 feet of it. And she was there, taking pictures of me on an escalator, waiting for my train. I tried to strike a good pose, uh, staring impatiently at my watch, worrying about the future, worrying about my job. There were all these people keeping me from commuting. Your referendum hadn't even passed yet. The voting was still going on, but your supporters were already celebrating, clogging up the platform so that the lines of commuters were backed all the way up the bomb shelter of a station you caused that. Four hours later, I got to work. Nowhere on my calendar does it say, be four hours late to work. You made that happen. You made me four hours late to my new job that I don't understand, where there's liquor everywhere, boozy traps hidden in every nook. And the funny thing is, I should have predicted the mess on the trains. This is my job now. I'm supposed to be able to figure this out, predict what will happen, visualize the future, my future, everyone's future. A whole city with me at the middle of it sitting right here, not drinking this whiskey. And you, sitting here, not leading the city. The city you made. Whatever happens tomorrow, you caused that too. I play the I Ching. I guess I, sh- I shouldn't say I play it. That's, that's probably insensitive. It's uh, a philosophy. Or a, a religion. I-, I don't even know. God, I, I-, I suck at my job. That was a take-a-drink line, by the way, um, in case you didn't notice. Uh, the glass was in my hand. I, I didn't even realize it at first. Instinct. And nature. Take a drink, Michael. That's who you are. But I didn't drink. Uh, not that time. And that's on me. But when I do, that'll be on me, too. I can tell you the future right now. We throw some coins, and the Iching lays it right out. I bet you've got a couple of subway tokens on you. Uh, Old ones, right? Like we used to use. The one with the big T stamped in the middle. I do, actually. Good, good. Uh, That's exactly what we need. Hexagram 40. Liberation. A thunderous cloudburst shatters the oppressive humidity. The superior person knows the release in forgiveness, pardoning the faults of others and dealing gently with those who sin against him. It pays to accept things as they are for now. If there is anything else to be gained, a return brings good fortune. If there's something yet to be gained, act on it at once. And then there's the, uh, the changing line, the one that says, Free yourself from this useless dependence. A new and trustworthy companion will appear. We have to let someone go. That's what it means. 
He did what he was meant to do, and we have to forgive him for doing only what he could, and no more. So, who's that for? It sounds like you and the red line. It sounds like me and Leon. It could be either one. This new and trustworthy companion is the crux of it, I think. Obviously, that's not you. But, I've got this mysterious shadow, right? The lady with the camera, she caught me at the grocery store yesterday at, uh, six. Just as I planned. Just as I'd scheduled on my calendar. She was peeking at me from behind, uh, the yogurt parfaits. I was selecting rhubarb. I, I don't like rhubarb. But, it's such a vivid shade of pink, I, I thought it would look brilliant on film. I see her, but she doesn't know I see her. For the moment, I think I'm winning. But maybe she's not my opponent. Maybe I'm not hers. That assumes this is my future. But is it really? Or is it yours? Or everyone's? I don't even know how to know. I'll tell you how to know. You fucking decide. You make a decision. That's how the future works. It's always your responsibility. Even when you know what it'll be. Fight. And the consequences are on you. Quit, and the consequences are on you, too. You still caused it. You still caused it by starting. And you caused it by quitting. And there's nothing you can do to stop causing it. It's all causes. Everything causes something. You cause me, I cause you, and we're both of us each other's fault. And that's another goddamn take-a-drink line, but I'm not gonna take a drink. That's the goddamn future. Goodbye, Mr. Mayor. Enjoy your drink. Enjoy mine, if you want it. I'm done here. I'm leaving. Maybe I'll be back. But I'm not giving in to my nature tonight. Greater Boston is written and produced by Alexander Danner and Jeff Van Driesen with recording and technical assistance from Mark Harmon. Please consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon campaign, or you can also help the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or social media. In order of appearance, this episode featured Braden Lamb as Leon Stamatis, Alexander Danner as the narrator, Summer Unsen as Charlotte Linzer Coolidge, Lydia Anderson as Gemma Linzer Coolidge, James Capabianco as the mayor of the Red Line, and James Oliva as Michael Tate. Also featuring Ben Flaumenhaft as Leon's landlord and Mike Linden as the Wonderland ad announcer. Interviews recorded with Greater Boston residents. Charlie on the MTA is performed by Emily Peterson and Dirk Tiedi. Green Valley Waltz and Shove That Pig's Foot a Little Farther in the Fire by Adrian Howard, Emily Peterson, and Dirk Tiedi. Drum tracks by Jim Johansson. Some sound effects and music used from public domain and Creative Commons sources. Episode transcripts will be posted online at greaterbostonshow.com. Greater Boston is written in part at the Writers' Room of Boston, a nonprofit workspace for Boston-area writers. Find out more at writersroomofboston.org.
around, all right, motherfucker. <laughs> Welcome to Redline. Choo-choo, motherfucker. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you want to throw in a choo-choo, motherfucker, <laughs> by all means do. Where appropriate, because I love that. <laughs> the Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Check out this place. You'd love to retire here? What is this? Oh god, what have you done? Spaceships. Season 2. Out now on podcast platforms across the galaxy.